across the UK, across continental North America, and around the world on the internet by webcast and by podcast. My name is Howard Hughes, and this is The Unexplained. Well, I hope that everything is good with you. Looking very spring-like out of my window, which is nice. And uh, I'm doing this show in a T-shirt. No heating necessary. It's pretty damn good at the moment. So I hope that you're experiencing similar conditions. And if you're going into winter in the Southern Hemisphere, then just know that in a few months, it's all going to flip the other way anyway. Now, I've been away for a couple of weeks from doing this. If you've been reading my social media, you'll understand why. And thank you so much for the wonderful support that you've given me through this period. Um, Basically, just to explain before we get into the guest, uh, that I had a fire in this very apartment where I've lived and had my being for a lot of years. And it was the most, I mean, when is ever something like this expected, but it was the most unexpected thing. It was caused by a punctured aerosol can that had fallen on the floor and somehow had got a tiny pinhole in it. It then sprayed out gas propellant, which all of these aerosols still have, and that gas propellant is highly flammable, so when it meets something that has a flame, like my gas boiler cupboard, which is in the hallway, then the whole lot goes up. It was shooting flames out of it like a flamethrower. I've been meaning to clear my flat for a very long time and have some very much needed refurbishment done. But the problem has always been, where do I live while that's done? Because it has to be extensive. You know, at the moment, it's like living in the 1970s or the 1980s. There've got to be some changes here. And now they've been forced on me. You know, maybe fate intervened. But boy, did it intervene in a hell of a way. So This thing is shooting out flames and igniting anything in its path. It was terrifying. I watched flames grow from 10 centimetres to 40 to 50, 60 centimetres in seconds. Now, if you've never been in a fire, and I hadn't, you know, the only thing I'd ever seen is, you know, bonfire night that we have here November the 5th, where people make bonfires. You don't understand how quickly it spreads. So... I realized that I was on the scene of this thing, and all I could do was to quickly run, go to my bathroom where I've got a bucket, fill up buckets of cold water, and start dousing the flames. So I lost a lot of clothes because it went for the clothes, and a few little bits of equipment, a mixer and something else, but it could have been much worse. Uh, The carpet burned in a couple of minutes of frantically throwing buckets on it probably five, I managed to get the flames under control. The most terrifying thing about it was when I was dousing the flames and throwing things that I thought I'd extinguished over my shoulder, I watched them burst into flames again. In fact, I put some burning clothes in the bath because I thought, well, that's wet and they're going to be okay. They burst into flames again. It was like a scene from a Hitchcock horror film. Then I breathed in an awful lot of terrible, acrid smoke. God knows what was in it. So if I sound even more wheezy than usual now, that's why. I thought, okay, that's done. I've got to try and get this thick smoke out of here. You know, I realized that if I'd followed the official advice, which is something that you must do, and that is if you have a fire, get out. That's the official advice. But if I'd done that here at that time, then I'd have completely lost my home. That's not an argument and never would be for you staying in if you're in that situation. But that's what I did. Um, So I then started venting the smoke, and I thought, I'll have a look inside this boiler cupboard. Now, it is a gas boiler. I found it 
to my horror, encircled in flames completely. So I quickly danced the flames in that, breathing even more acrid smoke in. Then I called the fire brigade, and within three or four minutes, Matt, Luke, and Daniel from the local Twickenham fire station were here. They realized that I was in shock. They thanked me for fighting the fire, but said the official advice is always to get out. And I said, well, you know, I, I realized that, but, you know, I'd have lost absolutely everything. They were great. Uh, the paramedics who arrived, three of them, were wonderful and helpful and checked me out. And they said, well, you've got um, clear signs of smoke and in inhalation. You've got to go to hospital. And they automatically call an ambulance in those situations. And I had to tell the ambulance crew that because a gas man, a gas engineer, Steve, was here and actually was here for about an hour and a half, making sure that everything was okay and safe. And because he was here and there was no one to leave in the flat, I couldn't go to hospital. Um, I ended up having breathing problems about a week later and ended up going to Kingston Hospital, thank you to them, spending five hours there. Um, and what else happened? Well, I'd planned to take a week off my show. I'd taken off May the 7th, was it? Yeah, May the 7th. <laughs> it all seems like a blur now. So that was the plan. And I thought I'm going to deal with some of these things, try and clear things out, try and make some progress towards getting things sorted out, try and get everything on an even keel. And I booked, uh, I booked, you know, my sister, or I, I love my sister dearly said to me, you know, you can't just stay there because you never go anywhere book a break so i booked a cheap break in malta um four nights three days in malta i've lost that and lost the money on that so from every point of view it was a hell of an experience but all experiences have a downside and the downside for me was the smoke inhalation and the shock that hit me a couple of days later uh, i had to get a little bit of help for that the upside is that i'm still here and i'm looking at my life in a completely different way you know, for years, I put work and sometimes employers who didn't care about me at all first. That's definitely going to be something that I look into. And I'm talking historically when I look back years in the past now, you know, not necessarily a reference to my, my current employers at all, but I put work first, didn't particularly worried about what they paid me, just did it and let everything else go. And so I've, I've learned a good lesson, and, you know, this is only being told to you so that maybe you can learn that lesson too. If you are putting work and employers before everything else, that's a good thing to be a diligent employee, and my God, I always gave 150%. But don't put it all absolutely first and foremost. And all of those things I have learned in the last two weeks. So if the heavens sent me a wake-up call, then they did it in a hell of a way, and I've heard big time. So look, if you didn't want to hear that description of what happened in the last couple of weeks, my apologies. And you know, you can always skip these things on podcasts anyway. But you know, I needed to tell the full story. And another massive upside, the biggest of all was your response and the amount of support and the wonderful messages that I've had. You know, at one point in the middle of all of this, I just felt like totally giving up completely. And those messages that keep coming in, saw me through. So just as you told me during the COVID years, sometimes these podcasts help you. You helped me. And I'm sorry this story has taken about six minutes to tell. My apologies for that. Let's get on with business. Thanks to Adam as ever, my webmaster, for his work on this. And thank you to you for all of the work. And if you've donated to the podcast recently, 
thank you so much. You know who you are. The man I'm going to be speaking with is a guy called Gary Jones on this edition of The Unexplained. We're going to talk about an unremarked, well, no, underremarked, that's the word, an underremarked UFO case, the Denby Lights case uh, from North Wales just over a decade ago. It is an amazing case. We'll talk a little bit more, too, about Welsh UFO cases with Gary, who's written a new book published by Philip Mantle's Flying Disc Press. I've got it here, called The Denby Lights, A Truthful Argument for the Existence of UFOs. I've been reading it. It is a great book, and it's a great story, I think. So Gary is the guest on this edition of The Unexplained to get us back underway, get the ball rolling again, get the UFO spinning, and get me back to normal life, I hope. Thank you very much indeed for being everything that you are. And if you email, then please tell me who you are, where you are, and how you use the show. Enough talking. The book is The Denby Lights. Gary Jones is the researcher and author behind it. He's online to The Unexplained Now from North Wales. Gary, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for having me on your show, Howard. Now, I have to clarify something I thought, and you should never make assumptions, first rule of journalism, that you're in North Wales. But in fact, the story's about North Wales, and you're in South Wales, yeah? That's right, yeah. I live in Merthyr Tidville, which is just not too far from the city of Cardiff. Why do you think, Gary, and we'll, we'll dive straight into it, that UFO encounters and stories, and there are many of them, don't seem to get the same coverage, or maybe I'm just not seeing it right, the same kind of coverage that stories that happen in England and maybe Scotland get? Why do you think the Welsh stories are often forgotten? That's a real mystery of its own. I guess there's just not as much interest in Wales as there is in uh, England and Scotland. You could say maybe there's a bit of media bias there, or maybe people just aren't, um, aren't as well up on the UFO sightings in Wales as they are with England and uh, Scotland, because um, it's not like we don't have our fair share of UFO sightings mm, around here. We've got do. some pretty good ones. You do, and we'll talk about them, yeah? I just, you know, find that it's only in recent years, like, for example, you know, uh, there was a book quite recently about uh, a particular case in West Wales, of which you may well be familiar, I think, near Haverford West. And there have been all sorts of encounters. And, of course, there's Kaz, Kaz Clark at uh, the Penturk incident. I probably mispronounced that uh, location. Uh, yes, I've been investigating it with her. Yeah, I mean, that is an amazing story and really needs, although it's had media coverage, needs to get more media coverage, I think, than it, than it has. But, you know... Oh, I, yeah, there's... Sorry, I was just going to say, with, with that particular case, mm. uh, Penturk, I mean, it's just the amount of shadow banning, shall we say, and censorship on that one. I just think... Well, maybe there's a, an answer to your question here. But maybe there's something about whales and the connection to UFOs and major sightings in particular that they don't want us discovering. So, well, I wonder I if it's—I wonder if it's something to do with the military aspect of it. You know, I spent being brought up and born in Liverpool. I spent a lot of my holiday time, you know, over in Wales, either mid Wales or North Wales, we used to do most of the time. And I can definitely remember being overflown on some mountain tops that we, we managed to reach. I think it was probably around Snowdonia, uh, mm. being overflown by military jets. It was almost like we were being buzzed by them. So there's military presence. They do exercises there. And those thoughts, sorts of things are not unknown. And of course, the Penturk case, and I'm just encouraging my listener here if you want to hear the conversation with Cass Clark about that it's back in my archives I think two years ago um, you know mm. there is heavy military involvement there apparently and also to this very day as you rightly say Gary there is an awful lot of 
top secret about it. There's an awful lot of not confirming, not not going there. Well, um, two years ago, I mean, we had a lot of cracking information, but since then, I mean, I can update you very quickly for your listeners. All right, well, let, um, let's just, in case there's a listener who didn't hear that edition, let's just say that, you know, Kaz Clark tells the story wonderfully. You've been investigating it with her. This mm-hmm. was the story of an all-encompassing um, encounter involving lights, possible craft, then military helicopters and military presence on the ground, and then later traces of radiation that I think still exist in that area to this day. And that that's a really bad summation, but that's more or less it, isn't it? Um, it's some elements of it, yeah. It just, um, if you want to do a quick summation, I'll, I've tried to do this myself because there's so much to cover. <laughs> Let's do it, yeah. But, um, I mean, it inv- it's... A UFO event that happened on February 26, 2016, with large military presence and aircraft and Navy, we believe, as well now, uh, in South Wales. Now, there was a a plane, military spotter plane, circling the area for three days and nights. And then finally, on the night in question, when uh, the military seemed to know something was happening, the entire, well, a lot of the Air Force and military presence on the ground jumped into action. And those who were watching, such as Kaz Clark and David, her neighbor, they saw what they were waiting for at some point. A large, when it was fully lit, a large pyramid, triangular-shaped kind of craft, as they describe it, fully lit up, huge, hundreds of feet high, hundreds of feet wide, shot multiple objects out, out the top of itself. One was like a recon, the others were like, I don't know, maybe let off uh, to, to explore drones or whatever. After uh, a couple of minutes of viewing it, the craft let out a huge hand of lightning, got very close to the ground. One of the other green objects, which was acting like a recon device, caught the attention of some planes that came into the area and drew its attention over to the northwest area of Smilock Woods, which is just outside of Penturk, near Lantrisson. And when that was happening, Two of the barrels uh, came over to Cars Clark and David by the gate. There was a moment of interaction between them. One of the barrels went from red to green and shone some kind of light on the two witnesses. Cars in particular felt like she had been um, uplifted, or you know, like the fear had been taken out of her, and there was some form of contact made between the two, between herself and maybe telepathic, maybe. Anyway, a couple of, about an hour or so later, there was an almighty explosion outside of Royal Glamorgan Hospital, that, that we now know something crashed into the woods. And one of the Apache helicopters was forced to make an emergency landing afterwards. There was a large presence on the ground in Lantrisant and in the woods in particular. Something was removed from there. Two trips from a Chinook helicopter confirm this. I have witnesses to that. And I also have witnesses now who are actually seeing the helicopters interact with these barrel-shaped objects, as well as two witnesses now who actually saw um, what crashed in the woods and the military were there retrieving it. And just to sum up something else, uh, we've had confirmation now from the MOD, especially the MOD, that there were no pre-programmed low-flying training exercises of any kind for the South Wales area during the entire February of 2016. So the question remains, Howard, what were they doing here? 
what what indeed why are they so cagey about it to this day and yes they have confirmed i think that there was a military exercise in another area but nowhere near the area that kaz was in and the other no. witnesses were in uh, and why when kaz herself went to the location the woodland when she went to investigate and to look why were there military looking people I think, clad in, in what looked like hazmat suits in some cases. Why was she warned off by them? It's all bizarre. That was a, that was a month or so, about yeah. a month or so after. Mm. Um, I don't know the exact date, but it's within a few weeks or a month or thereabouts. Um, yeah, there was a military camp site there, satellites, hookups, large computers, strange laptops, you know, the containers that they carry, military-style tenting equipment, and, um, of course, men with machine guns, which they try to conceal. And there were also people going through various parts of the fields now, not the woods, the fields, where the large pyramid triangular craft was uh, present. And they were given a number of different explanations. One minute they were Vodafone, then they were looking for mock mines. And I think the other one was a fracking survey team. And, of course, there was um, a moment where Kaz was able to see the campsite, and later on there was an interaction with the... Well, was amazing their commanding officer and as someone jokingly said i didn't know vodafone had a commanding officer and um yeah it, it was we've asked about this we've asked the councils we've asked the military we've asked the mod we've we've asked anyone who would have information as to why that those people would be there in that field no one no one seems to know anything and but we've had it confirmed through like their responses like section 26 to direct questions you know, that they were military. They didn't answer it directly, but in an indirect way, with the Section 26 answers as well, we know they're military. It seems very odd that if there was nothing to see there, why be so cagey about it? Why be so defensive about it? And why be in a kind of denial about it, which it seems they yeah. are? I, I think it's in the pantheon of United Kingdom cases. I think it is one of the oddest. It's also interesting in that it is not something that happened as a lot of the cases in America happened, you know, 50 years ago or 40 yeah. years ago, whatever. This thing is very contemporary. This thing is within easy living memory. And yes. you know, it never goes away. You know, periodically, your newspapers in Wales will pick it up. I don't know whether they report it fairly. I think they probably have. Whether they get the right end of the stick with it, I'm not sure. They never do. Let's be fair about it that the media, from the reports that I've seen, and this happens with a lot of you know cases of this kind, hasn't exactly understood the story. Let's put it that way, yeah? No, they haven't understood the story. It's not reported fairly and it doesn't even cover some of the more basic points fairly it just tries to mock it in any way it can mm. so where are we left with it then gary you know what can you do about it now you've had denials from those who are denying you've had refusals for information from some of those who might have information to give you is there anything that you can do? I seem to recall in the Penturk case, wasn't there a police officer or a couple of police officers who had spoken to some investigators? Not as far as I know. Okay. We were the ones asking about the South Wales Police, but the South Wales Police's response was that uh, the officers involved in the so-called exercise had all retired. So they had no information or understanding of what we were talking about, but yet they understood the officers who took part have now all since retired. So if you didn't know what we were talking about, how did you know the officers who were involved? Yeah, exactly. If, if 
if and, it's something um, so insignificant, how come you know so much about it? Exactly. And then the other interesting thing is we were pushing them for an answer on this, whether or not they did a counter-terrorism exercise, not military, a counter-terrorism, which they do pretty often, really. Um, but they wouldn't. They would just say, we can neither confirm nor deny. And me and Kaz Clark have been pushing them on this. We had a information, is it the information commissions officer, the one that deals with freedom of information requests? They're like yeah. the branch you go to complain well, after. They're, they're, they're supposed to be the, the ombudsman for these things, yeah. Yeah. Well, in this case, they were very good for us because um, they were forced to make the police answer our question. But if anything, they even... They even sort of added a bit more information. They even asked the counterterrorism units for Wales themselves, and they confirmed that they had no exercises. But then I remember specifically asking the Royal Mint, which is like a very secure building, you know, because there's money printed there with the king's head on it now, of course. And um, they confirmed that the counter extreme, the counterterrorism unit was who was uh, informing them of that exercise. But then. If they don't know nothing about an exercise for that night, then who was informing them? Isn't say, that interesting? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you know, if the, the Royal Mint at Lantrissant know about this thing because they've been told about it through official channels, and yet exactly. this thing wasn't happening, <laughs> then one, one hand is not talking to the other one, it seems to me. That, that's, that's incredible. So there's a lot more work to be done on this. Well, I gotta give Cars Clark credit. She's really good at um, the legal-minded stuff and the interpreting of um, the sort of laws and everything. I'm pretty okay with it, but you know, she's she's got a real head for this kind of stuff. So together, we're making a real good team. So we 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 have all our strengths and we put them together. And we you know, and this is this is. I think what she's taught people, especially uh, when I've been working with her, I've, I've seen her mode of thinking now and how she does it. Obviously, with the freedom of information, it doesn't always pan out in your result but i think what we've learned is that you can get answers but you've just got to be clever and persistent in the way that you do it hmm. and you've got a real find there with the confirmation yeah. from plantris and from the royal Mint. and with the military and, and and from the military saying that there was something but it was not there and the police having more information than you would expect them to have about something that never happened <laughs> this is a great case um and i wish you luck with it and i thought kaz you know, Kaz and I had quite a long conversation, I think two years ago, and yeah. I was very impressed by her diligence and sincerity and tenacity, those three things. So I hope oh, yeah. that, you know, she, 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 she can keep on with this. Mm. She's got that in abundance. All of those things. All right, well, you know, you and I and her will talk about that again, if you'd like. Yeah. The Denby Lights case. Um, yes. Just tell me, before I talk about you and other cases to set the scene, why should we be interested in some lights that appeared in North Wales when people are reporting lights all the time. Well, when you say it like that, I guess maybe nothing, but um, <laughs> no, but no, here's the thing. Um, this was a sighting that happened on January 3rd, 2012, 3 a.m. in the morning. It uh, was seen by a family of four, and we've got video of these lights and with the witness testimony and the understanding of uh, what was going on that night, it's clear that these are not just ordinary lights like car lights or building lights or some kind of natural phenomena lights like lightning arcing or something or something that would be arcing off electrical wires. Um, this happened during the middle of a storm with 50 mile an hour winds, torrential downpour rain, and of course, uh, out in the middle of an open fielded area, 
where the temperatures like might practically zero degrees. So you know, not the time, not the conditions for the hobby flyer. Not for the drone flyer or the helicopter flyer or anyone to be doing anything outdoors whatsoever. Even if you are a diehard rambler, you know, that will travel through Wales uh, with friends. You know, it's not even ideal conditions for hunting if there was uh, such a thing happening over there. Well, we'll get to, because there were some suggestions that there was some hunting activity. We'll talk about that as we unfold the story. But, you know, not not great conditions for anyone. Two or three mm. o'clock in the morning, so, you know, not the kind of time when most people do things. So, for all of those reasons, it rings alarm and interest bells. You say in the book... Well, yeah, I mean, I also say that um, we've got video, which we've had analysed, and it's been professionally done by Jason Gleaves of UF Only, mm. so big shout-out to him. In Chester, yep. And, um, yeah, he's, he's very, very good. And um, he confirmed that whatever this thing is, and he's an RAF man, so he's trained in observation and aircraft, and um, he says that this thing is unexplained, and he doesn't believe it's a drone or any other vehicle flying outside because it just doesn't conform to any of the known light configuration patterns or things you'd expect to see on, well, anything you'd normally expect to have uh, flying or floating or hovering around uh, our countrysides and skies. Quoting from the book, you say, I was ever so slightly surprised to discover that Denby, indeed the entire county of Denbyshire and the whole of North Wales, historically were places literally brimming with a significant number of UFO sightings. Moreover, these went beyond mere standard reports. So there's a bit of a history there. Now, there's a history with me. As I told you before we started recording this, I was brought up in Crosby uh, near Liverpool, and I was lucky to live on a road that had a beach at the bottom of it. And we had the Irish Sea come the end of the Mersey at the bottom of that road. And we could stand and look, and I did it often, across at North Wales. We could see, you know, Denby and Mould and Snowdonia and even as far as Anglesey on clear days. Very mm. different terrain, very mountainous, very beautiful to look at. But a mysterious looking area when you're standing in an urbanized area where I was. You know, a place that could spawn mysteries. And indeed, there were some. Even, uh, you say in the book, in Denby, there was an incident in Denby in 1964. Yeah, I have mentioned some of the uh, historical things about this because, I mean, the reason why I... The reason why I bring all this up is because there's been a lot of sightings and a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of ancient castles there and everything... And um, I just thought it'd be interesting to look at the folklore of the place because I heard, I heard a lot about uh, the ghost stories up there as well. And uh, I just thought, um, when you've saved 1964, can you just read it back to me? Because I'm trying to remember exactly I've what I've just got is. in my notes here that there was a... I don't think you say very much about it, but there was a sighting in Denby in 1964. You give more detail, actually, of something that happened in 1978. Um, now, yeah, Liverpool call it uh, Lanerky Med, which it isn't. Uh, Lanerky Mev, I think it is. I think it's pronounced Lanerky Mev. Lanerky I know it's... So it's th th this is a great one, though, and this is one that I've never heard or read about. Um, a bullet-shaped object. This is a tiny, mainly Welsh-speaking village. So I think you're out beyond Llangothlin, places like that. Tiny Welsh-speaking village. Uh, 1978, bullet-shaped object and two humanoid figures. Yeah, um, I could just read quickly. Um, yeah, there was a lady that was walking a dog around the fields of Denby Castle, and... Um, they were encircled by a strange light, and that made the dog uh, kind of nervous. 
So that was something that I thought was interesting, especially when you get um, the ancient landmarks. But um, yeah, the the other one I remember, I actually met the lady who saw it. And um, can you hear me, Howard? I can. All right, this my, my my computer's saying I've got low resources. <laughs> Strange. Sorry about that. Right, yeah. They're probably Ahmed, monitoring you, um, Gary. Oh, I think they're always monitoring me, to be perfectly honest. Seriously? I have well, I, I, I seem to have trouble sometimes when I'm always doing live streams, especially when I'm talking about UFOs. It's not the first time this has happened. Because there's a uh, very slight, what they call in computer terms, latency. So there's a very slight, I mean, minimal delay between us, but it just kind of delays answers and replies. We get that sometimes. But, it, you know, I, I often get the feeling, truthfully, and I'm not paranoid, that sometimes I'm monitored. Isn't that weird? Anyway, this incident in 1978 involved, as we said, two humanoid figures. Yes, in, in there, was, um, there was a, a community there. I can't remember the name of it. It's in the book. But there's like farm fields and open areas uh, around the back of it. And people noticed uh, something odd coming out of the sky. And it was like a described like a bullet shaped or like, you know, like a rocket type, you know, like the kid's drawing of a rocket shape kind of thing. And it came down, it landed behind some trees, behind a field. And uh, all the residents were, what, many of the residents were watching it. Uh, there were some mentioned in a report for, by Bufora. And uh, the names of many are mentioned in there. But uh, one particular lady, she saw two humanoid figures. I say humanoid because they look human. They are human-like, you know, the like, arms and legs and head and everything. And there's a sketch in the book. Yes, and they're wearing what she described as these, uh, well, I can only describe like radiation protection suits, you know, when you get like a, like a radiation fallout and you see those people with the helmets, the big silver-like suits on, designed to protect you mm. from more hazardous, hazardous events. That's what, that's what they seem to be wearing, and they were walking side by side. They came up the field and walked back. And uh, they seem to have some sort of like some sort of stripe down the center or the side of their um, on the side of their suit, and then they walked back to where this object had been seen landed. Uh, the craft itself uh, took off, no noise. I understand, um, no signs of propeller or propulsion or means of that we would be aware of. And sometime later on, no more than I, I don't know, maybe within the hour or by very soon. Uh, the military were on site, and uh, people quickly began to um, suspect that something out of the ordinary had very much happened there. And, yeah, when I went up to North Wales one time, I actually met the lady who still lived in the area and saw it, and she told us what had happened. And, you know, she was very, she was very sincere and very truthful about it. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's just amazing for, for North Wales. Has, North Wales in particular has some very interesting cases, but as well as the South. Mm. Uh, you talk about uh, the incident in 1983, uh, which is not quite North Wales. It's more coastal Mid Wales, isn't it? Near Aberystwyth, um, often referred yes. to as the Europe equivalent of Roswell, uh, a strange UFO incident debris found over an area of farmland that they were never really able to explain. Yes, this is um, a man named Gary Rose, like a veteran in uh, UFO research and cases. This is one of his really interesting ones. He produced a video of it called The European Roswell with another researcher. I can't remember his name right now, but it's called The European Roswell. 
And according to what he told me and what's in the book, you know, there was some debris over some farmland area. He was called, he and his team, to maybe come and have a look at it. But as they were sort of like trying to get ready to get there, um, it seems like somebody came in, cleaned up the area, took most of the debris away, if not all of it, uh, dug up the top layer of soil in certain areas, chopped down some trees, and um, uh, left without so much as, uh, well, like, you know, like saying goodbye, I guess. They, like, they just came in, came out, came in, cleaned up, went away, and um, Gary and his team were quite dumbfounded by this. But he figured... You know, as good as they may be, they're not going to get it all. He looked around, and after some persistence, he found a piece of this mis- this mysterious material that uh, uh, was said to be over a, an area of four large fields, apparently. And he's had it analysed, and he's got it in a lockbox even to this day. And apparently, it's like some sort of aircraft material, but it's like it's got some sort of honeycomb, like tinfoil-looking honeycomb thing. You can stand in it with your full weight. You wouldn't even... You won't even put a dent in it, apparently. But it's very light as well. So it's very, very durable and strong, but it's very light. And there's like this green paint material on the outside as well. And the paint, he says, has some sort of very strong aerodynamic qualities to it. It would be very useful to stick it on our jets and our planes even today because it's so uh, resistant to airflows, you know, and drag and stuff like that. So So echoes of Roswell there. Any hieroglyphics, any hieroglyphs, that sort of thing there? I didn't see it on the piece that he showed me, no, but um, it would be interesting if someone did recover something like that. Maybe a whistleblower could come forward for that one. But as far as I know. And again, the um, the question being why the great interest, why the cleanup team, why the total cleanup? You know, where's the hurry? Exactly. I mean, there's remnants of this with Penturk and with Denby as well, with the chopping down of trees and the removal of uh, things uh, from the local sites. I mean, all done quickly, hush, hush, rushed, and no one seems to know why when you ask about it. There's the Berin Mountains incident of 1974, which is often trotted out by the media, uh, sometimes when they've got a quiet day as being you know, one, of the, one of the great cases. And indeed it was. Um, yeah. This is an astonishing case that, that kind of has it all. It's an all-singing, all-dancing thing. Just to remind us of this thing. This is um, the Berrien Mountains, as far as I can recall, from my trips to North Wales, that's when you go beyond Snowdonia, isn't it? If you're heading out towards... Um, yeah, there's... Um, Monmouth, uh, not Monmouth, when you're heading out towards... Uh, what's that place where they did the prisoner, you know, the, the village that I put Merriam? Yeah, there's a, 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 a series of mountains over there which... Uh, I can't remember the name of them, but uh, they're known as like, there's like Caderberwin and Caderbronwin and a number of others. There's like a series of mountains there, which, um, uh, which make up a very beautiful landscape. But the Berwin mountain is a very incredible case because there was evidence of an explosion, some large rocking, uh, exp- explosion that rocked people's houses, shook the ground, made people very uncomfortable. It actually measured a 3.6 on the Richter scale, I do believe. And military again, quickly on site. Local residents thought that maybe a plane had crashed, you know, a large plane, and you know, the the fuel line had probably exploded the, the you know the main the main body of the plane. And, and we have was, to say that the rumble, the tremor 
from this. You said it was a 3.6. It was felt. My parents, measured, yeah. my parents moved from Crosby and lived out their lives uh, near Formby, which is not far from Southport. That's mm. miles away across Liverpool Bay. Uh, and they felt the impact of, of whatever this was in 1974 there. Just shows you how powerful it was, wasn't it? So an astonishing case. Well, again, there's a connection to the Smilog there, just quickly with Penta. I mean, that explosion was felt, or heard, I should say, very clearly for some, like five, six, seven miles away. And that shook the ground. That measured on the Richter scale, not as clearly as the Berwyn Mountain one, but one lady in particular, I think her name was Pat, she was driving with her two teenage daughters, um... And she saw some glowing red object or something like that. And it looked like the military had lights on it and spotlights on it, like they were studying it. And I learned a lot about this even more by probably the main researcher on this one, I think, anyway, Scott Felton. Mm -hmm. he, he's actually done a lot of good work on this. But it was there for a while. And then apparently those who may have seen something afterwards, this thing took off and then headed out to uh, the... The sea, the North Sea, you know, the North area of Wales over the sea, but probably may have been seen from Liverpool as well. Now, talking of North Wales, Chester is not too far away. We know that there is some military involvement. There's certainly a thriving still today aviation sector there. There's Harden Airport there. Do we think that there could be any connection with the, the military involvement, the military manufacture? In, in that area just adjacent, right next to North Wales? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it always helps to have these uh, facilities close by because that way you can um, stay on location, but at the same time, give the, you know, give, give the facade that you're just doing military aviation stuff and maybe you're probably working on something top, more secret. I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised if there was an under... You know, a lot of people have speculated, and I think it could be some truth in it, that there's an underground base there somewhere in the North Wales area. Maybe out to sea, even. A lot of objects have been seen coming in and out of the ocean, you know? Have they? Yeah, I've had uh, a few people tell me this. I'm even investigating one now. Uh, I'm just waiting for some information to come through. About, um, yeah, some lady, I can't remember, I can't describe the object. It's like a, some sort of V-shaped object, which uh, seems to have these, like, um, unusual ridge lines going through it, based on a diagram. Flying very low over the sea, not making any noise. She and her partner saw it, and she got in contact with me after seeing uh, me and Kaz talk about it on the Pentuk incident. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I thought that's interesting. I'd like to look into that because it's a fresh, fresh case also. And there's some information to back it up. There's no, there's nothing on radar. Someone posted radar returns for that time. And, of course, she's done a diagram, and we've got some uh, local information as well. So it's, you know, it's something that I can, I can get my teeth into. And if you don't want to tell me, you don't have to, but where was this? Was this in the deep water off uh, Flandidno, somewhere like that? Oh, it was not too far, not too far from, um, not too far from the coast. Oh, I do have it somewhere. Where's my notes? E don't you just hate that? I've got no problems telling you. I just, I'm just trying to find my notes here. But just no. for listeners' benefit, I, I know because I grew up in that area and I'm very familiar with North Wales, you know, as a as a whole. There is an amazing topography there. You have is, the this an, is there a place called Flandadno up there? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a holiday it resort. There. Yeah, and you've got the, the mountain. You've got a mountain where, in fact, one of my relatives. Uh, I'm talking about in in a previous generation, long time ago, actually lived in the foothills of of the Great Orm, the mountain that Llandidno there. So what, yeah. what we're saying is the mountains virtually come down to the sea, and then there is this deep area of sea. It's the Irish Sea, effectively. And if you turn left, you go to Dublin. If you go north, then you go to the Isle of Man or Scotland or the Lake District. You know, there is a lot of deep water, but immediately inland, the mountains virtually come right down to the sea. It's an astonishing area. So if you were going to have USOs, undersea objects like that, appearing... Mm then that would be the kind of mysterious area of water that they would be appearing from. What if, I mean, are you hoping to make some headway with that case? Well, I've just been contacting through the Freedom of Information again. I've just asked local airports and um, coast guards if they've had any reports or sightings or something. So I'm just, I'm just trying to get some information, but um, it, it doesn't seem to have been like any other reports made about it except these two. I'm just maybe hoping that someone might have recorded something for that time. Okay, well, I will say what I often say here. You'd be amazed at the number of people who are reached by this podcast and the TV show. But uh, if mm. you know anything about this or you've seen something like this in that area, sort of. It was in, I think it was in August of 2020 when they said they saw it. So, okay. you know, if you, if, if you were there in the summer of 2020, maybe you've seen something, maybe you, did, maybe you didn't, I don't know. All right, so if you were in that kind of North Wales area, maybe you were on a day trip from Liverpool, maybe you lived there, uh, anywhere mm. along that band of coast, by the sea, and you saw something of the kind that we've described here, then please let me know and I'll pass it straight on to Gary. Gary, let's get on to the Denby Lights case then, which is the meat of this book, and you've done some fabulous yes. research about this. What is it that piqued your interest about the Denby Lights case? We have to say it is just over 11 years ago now. Oh, um, it ties in with the time we started uh, the investigation with Penturk. Obviously, that was in February of 2016. Kaz, uh, we'd make, I'd made contact with Kaz on October of 2017. So once we got I got information, we got information from them. We could start uh, really doing some real deep dive research. And I was looking around for video evidence of any UFOs around this time, and I came across uh, the video of uh, the Danby lights one, uh, but I was like, well, that's really interesting. Those lights are very odd. And it was only like a 30-second clip, but I kept it in mind anyway because I really had a, an interest in that one. That was like December of 2017. And then one day I was up in North Wales and I was asking the family, could I meet them? And they were very happy to meet me. And I asked them about the case and then they said, we got video and I was like, Oh, can I have a look at this video? And they showed, they showed it to me and I put, they put it up on the big screen. Now I, this is like, you've got like nine minutes of video footage here, maybe 10 minutes, maybe. And I'm like, you've actually got all this and nobody's, nobody's really done a full analysis on it. I was like, uh, has anybody actually done an investigation with this? And they, they told me that a local researcher named Peter Glynn had done it. He'd done a preliminary investigation, does some good work with it. Um, and I just, looked at his work and I realized, you know, I could really take this further. I could really expand upon it and really just bring it to light because I thought to myself, it's not often you get video footage this long of something like that. And I just knew we had good, great witnesses with the family members who saw it and the conditions were not right for the night for anyone to be doing these things. And I just thought, come on now, this is clearly obvious, not a typical 
helicopter drone explanation there's this this is something very unusual indeed so i was committed to looking into this and um i first did a documentary on it like you know, you know my own my own little video documentary and later on i just decided you know i really would like to do a book on it because as i say with the cover the denby lights a truthful argument for the existence of ufos I am. I'm. I'm. Con- I was always convinced that UFOs were real because I'd seen one when I was seven. But what? What did you see when you were seven? I was going to talk to you about your history with these things, but you know that at that age, obviously made an impact. What did you see? Um, well, oddly enough, uh, something of a similarity to this one, which is what I saw. Maybe in, I, I did so, sort of see maybe in the video, um, but theirs was different to mine because I saw something oval shaped when I was seven. Me and my friends were playing in the street. It was during the summer school holidays. Um, pretty dark, uh, although there was some evidence, slim, slim daylight on the other side of the sky. But in the other area where it was really dark, we saw this oval object. It was hovering silently, didn't make any noise. And it had these unusual lights off of it. It was like a red, yellowish, orange kind of glow. It moved like a lava lamp, you know, it had a sort of like globular lava looking flow to it in, in around its rim but the way the lights moved i often describe it like the night rider car you know you ever mm. seen it in yeah in the old, yeah you had that like red light that would move back and forth you know you had the red dot light you know then the, 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 it sort of had the faded shady sort of effect following it it moved like that but more fluid like and it had these like bluish tints around the edges of the lights as well seven years of age did you tell anybody I think I told a few people, yeah, but obviously, uh, I, we, my, one of my friends even jokingly said it was a UFO, but we're seven years old. We just thought UFO meant was something that's, that's just a, like an unusual craft. We didn't realize the significance of what we were looking at. But, um, yeah, uh, no, in, interesting, just to, to chime in here, the witnesses of this incident in 2012, the Denby Lights, uh, we're talking about Nathan and Alex. I think they were teenagers, brothers. They yes. shot the video on their pretty good Toshiba uh, recorder, camcorder. Uh, then we've got Linda Pritchard, who adds to it in that she describes it very well. And it sounds a lot like what you saw when you were seven. The, mm. These lights appeared to be at the same time stationary but rotating yes there's also another person who saw it as well uh kira george i can tell you the quick story as to how it went down if you yeah, want let's, to let's let's do that let's let's do the groundwork yeah okay so nathan thomas was 12 at the time it was january 3rd 2012 as i say so 3 a.m in the morning um he's watching tv he hears a noise outside uh he was a loud bang he goes to investigate it's his big rubbish bin that's been blown over by the wind. And uh, he can see in the distance that there's something glowing or sparkling. And he thought, it's the TV reflecting off the window here. Then he realizes it's not. He opens the window and sees there's something in the distance acting very strange. And, you know, a bit excited about this now. He goes to wake up his brother who's trying to sleep. And uh, I can't remember the exact words he used, but I think he said it's like a strange UFO object outside and Nate, uh, Alex thought Nathan was winding him up. Uh, but no, he goes there, you know, and he opens the window and yeah, he's instantly drawn to it as well. And uh, Nathan for Christmas, I made the mistake of saying his birthday in one podcast, but it was for Christmas. He had that camera you mentioned, the Camellio S30 Toshiba make. 
and they just started recording. And I got to give the boys credit for having um, the t- you know to the temerity, is it, and the, and the, the foresight to actually just. Well, start videoing the presence of mind to do it yeah, and as you say yeah. you know they were involved in it linda pritchard saw it and then yes. kira george the other of the four witnesses of the yes. final one she was woken by the commotion it was we have to remind people it's two o'clock in the morning three o'clock in the morning three o'clock. Know, middle of the night a storm is happening so these are not flying conditions what could this be well that's the thing i mean I interviewed the family. Um, they're all convinced that this is a noble-shaped object. I mean, it wasn't just rotating and sort of like uh, saying like a, like a, on a horizontal line. You know, it started to move vertical upwards of a thirty to forty degree angle, and you can see that in the documentary that I made. It's it's clear for there to see. Um, they they know it's not the golf course. They know it's not the quarry. They know it's not the farmer. And there's nothing that they see regularly that would explain this lights. Uh, actions and movements even the way they lit up they would be they were very bright fluid like lights and they sort of dimmed very strangely well nathan says in the book uh, and i'm going to quote from the book nathan appears to accept that the lights of the uap may have been camouflaged or that possibly the object may have possessed the ability to cloak itself yeah yeah that's uh, that's their words not mine um based upon what they were seeing it was interesting that um they could see a sort of outline with their eyes the camera doesn't pick it up so well but um i mean i think one of the reasons they say that is because at some point the the lights just suddenly go off and you know uh nathan and alex and all are really and kira at this point they're all oh where is it you know and it's like uh, alex i remember saying oh don't stop and I mean, when the lights were actually there, I mean, they viewed it for 15 minutes. And I think Nathan and Alex in particular were worried that, you know, maybe the government might come and, I don't know, threaten them or take them away or something like that. You know, but Linda... Did, being, did they have any contact from anybody about this? Um, they did contact the police, first of all, uh, to sort of show them what it was about. They decided that it was ramblers and nothing more, but not before they confirmed that there was no helicopters out that night, none of theirs or anyone else's. So that was a good confirmation. Um, the local researcher, Peter Glynn, then was contacted by them. He came in and he went up to the site, you know, with the farmland area to see if there was any human activity. There was none. He took a day-night comparison of the, the, the window area just to show you where the lights were actually more or less coming from interviewed the family got some real good testimony on on video very quickly you know fresh as uh, their minds could be and you know he put together a very interesting report which i uh, acknowledge in the book and i just knew you know i said i could take this and really expand upon it because you know I've, i really try to cover all bases and i was able to put this book together the denby lights and i mean one of the things i do in the book when you asked me earlier what could it be I mean, well, let's take a look. I mean, let's, let's, let's examine it. Is, it. is it lights coming from the golf course? Well, the golf course is over to the left. It's not in line with the actual thing. There's a quarry over to the right. Could it be some working night, maybe? Well, again, it's off-center and well over to the right of the uh, line of lights. This obviously isn't anything like that. Is it 
drones? Is it fireworks? Is it sparklers? Is it people hunting? Um, well, there was a suggestion in the book that, and I have to explain the term for people not in the UK, there was a suggestion that what was seen may have been so-called lampers. Uh, these are people who go out hunting using, you know, bright lights. Yes, to uh, cause the eyes of the creatures, uh, the eye, you know, the back of the eye of the creature's lens to flare up, you know, like the optical nerve areas and all that. The lights make them stand out very, very clearly. So that's how they hunt them or trap them. Yeah, lampers. That's one of the things that they use. They use these like big spotlights to shine, to shine in the eyes of the creature to see where they are. But who would have really been out, out in a storm like that in the middle of the night? No that one. Thing. No one. And as far as I know, it's farmland, and I don't think the farmer gives permission for that stuff anyway. And I think you checked in with the farmer, didn't you, in one of your investigations, and you know confirmed that there was nothing and no one around at that time. Yeah, the family uh, spoke. I think the family contacted him and they relayed that information back to me. I mean, he doesn't work that night anyway. He never works at night. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a, I mean, Alex sent me a video of the tractor lights that, you know, would be rotating around on the top of the vehicle. And I, I said, well, that's probably the closest thing I've seen, but it doesn't even match up to that. You know, I mean, and, I, and that I kind to... of light on a tractor is not going to permeate the darkness in that way. It's going to be seen no. for you know, a hundred yards, maybe. It's not going to rotate. It's not going to tilt. It's not going to go up like a 30, 40 degree angle. And it's certainly not going to just have multiples of flashing lights, large lights, small lights, condensed packed area of lights, all flickering and, and shining in a very unusual way unlike anything you see on an aircraft or vehicle or ground vehicle of any kind. Was there one object or more? No, I think there was one solid object. And the thing is as well, there's a red light on top of this object. Mm. The family did notice that to me. They said there was like this red light on top and then around the center of it, you know, there was other flashing bluish lights were really going, going mad at some point. They seem to be very clear in the book on their estimate of the size, um, 60, 70 feet across apparently. Yes, there was, um, there was the, I asked them, do you, you know, could you maybe give me an idea of how big these things were, or the, the lights? And they said, well, you know, they had an idea of rough, rough estimate because Linda was convinced, and she's probably correct on this, that the, 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 wherever the source of the lights was coming from, it wasn't all the way up in the farm area. We're talking somewhere close to a football field behind the row of houses that uh, you can see in the distance. A place called Kai Howell or Kai Howell, I think is how you pronounce it. And um, we walked that area, and she said the lights were probably coming from here. So I did a little analysis using Google Earth as a, a means of measurements and distance. And I took the two landscapes I could see in the video and the daylight images, furthest left light and the furthest light, right shining light. And I thought, okay, let's just line it up to the line of sight and see how far we, we go here. And when I put it to 60, 70 feet distance, it was around that area. So I think that that was a pretty good way of, uh, mm. you know, putting the estimations together. Now, so, you're, yeah, dealing, I, you're dealing with North Wales police here. And in the book, you say uh, North Wales police did not confirm or deny the existence of any information, but they were unable to release it and are empowered to issue a refusal notice. In other words, you asked for information from North Wales police and didn't get any. No, I am. Um, as you know, there's a lot of data protection stuff in there as well, which, um, I mean, maybe one day I'll get my hands on it, but I th I'm going to, I'm going to work with the family at some point and see if, uh, maybe I can, uh, get the permissions from them and see what the legals, legal stuff I have to get around in order to get that report. Cause I know the reports there, the police were notified. How much is true.
Now, Jason Gleaves uh, from Euphonely, based in Chester, old friend of mine. I often send him um, pictures and moving video that people have sent me of things that they have seen. And very often, Jason will say, well, it's not what they think it is. You know, more often than not, Jason will say, there's a rational explanation for what this is. It was the sun being at a particular angle over the North Sea at that time, or the, the Irish Sea, whatever. Um, but occasionally he'll come back to me. He has a few times with, we genuinely cannot explain this. It is an unidentified aerial phenomenon, whatever it might be. Now, you gave Jason the video, the video that the two boys shot on that Toshiba camera. What did Jason say? Um, as he says pretty much in the video, he puts it in text format, actually. But what he basically says is that it's clearly an object uh, that's solid. Um, obviously, the lights are in a strange and unusual formation. Um, he confirms that it's not coming from the golf course or, you know, there's no landmarks that would suggest that this is um, coming from something stationary on the ground. And uh, he doesn't believe that um, he doesn't believe that this is a drone because even the technology at that time was not very widespread as it is now. But again, you know, the the family are very convinced of what they're seeing. But this is an oval shaped craft, and he also t highlights in the report that it's tilting and rotating at the same time. And um, yeah, a very unusual case and. Uh, it has to remain, as he says, unexplained. It's a genuine video. This is a genuine, the video was genuine, and whatever this thing is, it has to go down as unexplained. So that's pretty much the gist of his report. And there are some stills from the video. I'm just looking at them in the book, we have to say. You ran this past my friend Malcolm Robinson in Scotland. And here's a quote from the book. Yeah. Um, he investigated the sighting and reported that the lights were not lanterns. So Malcolm Robinson is as baffled as the rest of us by what this might have been. Yes. And uh, I also asked him um, about a case that he, uh, I think he may have, uh, there was one up in Scotland. There's a story about it on uh, the Mail Online, and it's like a UFO that spent four hours hovering above a rural home, and they captured video footage of it, and some of the lights are very um, very similar in the way that they shine and the, sometimes the configuration of them. So uh, I asked Malcolm about that myself, and you know, as he says, it's not lampers and it's not lanterns, it's not fireworks. I mean, we try to eliminate all the possible ideas before, obviously, we get into the more um, UFO, UAP type of stuff. It seems to me that what you need for this, and what may come forward with the publicity from the book, and I hope you get plenty of it, mm. you need more witnesses. They can't have been the only people to have seen this. Yes, I know. I mean, somebody else must have at least uh, been peeping out of a window <laughs> somewhere in the area. Um, that tends to happen when you get pub when you get more publicity on a case. You know, suddenly someone comes along and says, "Oh, hang on now, I may have you know they may have mistaken the lights for something else themselves." You know, and probably forgotten all about it. And then they'll think back, "Hang on, storm, strange lights." They'll put the two together, and suddenly, yeah, you know, I may get more. I do have four great witnesses. I think all the family are great witnesses because they stand by what they say even to this day, despite all the ridicule and flack they mm -hmm. get. Especially Nathan. I mean, I just want to say this, you know, Nathan has really become, well, I wouldn't say, I, I don't think he regrets speaking out about it, but he's almost like now, I wish I hadn't said nothing because of the, the, the ridicule it, 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 it gives him. People have given him, I should say. 
And I just think that's sad, you know, for people to be acting like that. I mean, come on now. This is the 21st century, not like silly, silly 1950s when we were mocking everyone online about it, or on TV, I should say. Absolutely. And you say that these are totally credible witnesses. There's another yeah. element to this. Maybe just at the end of this, we'll talk about this. They have a neighbor. David Williams is his name. He yes. had an experience of something and actually has iPad recorded footage of it one week before this happened. No, um, what he did was is that he took an image from the original video from Nathan and he was able to enhance it to, to such a point that you could see the real outline of the top part of it at least and um, the lights that shimmer in the centre and the, the red light on top as well. And I was like, wow, how did you manage to do that? Because I've tried capturing screenshots from uh, this this video and I can't even get anywhere near as good as that. I can get something similar, but not as you know as, as much as you've managed to bring it out. So you must have gotten that really rare <laughs> screenshot, you know, from the whole nine minutes of video to really um, to really bring it to light. But no, he said about a week before this incident, I believe that yeah, we, about a week before that there was uh, he, he probably witnessed something similar from that area, and um, I said. What do you remember what it looked like? He said, Yeah, it had those sort of sort of similar looking lights and configuration. It was a very strange, unusual set of lights. And I just thought, oh, that's kind of interesting because I remember that I think it was a week before or a week after, somebody around the Denby Castle area in the daytime had taken a photograph of some disc-shaped object. The not too far away from where this particular thing happened. So it it, it tends to be true. That when a, a, a you know a, an object that's been seen so clearly like this for so long seems to stay present for a while in the area, maybe a few days or a week or so, uh, before it uh, it moves on and does something else. So that tends to be true. You know, people see a lot of strange things before a main sighting happens like that. They do. And if you look at uh, famous cases like Rendlesham Forest, there yes. were experiences at Rendlesham Forest before the, the main event, if you want to call it that. I think it's an incredible story. One of the impressive things about it, it's always the hallmark of a credible story, I think, is that the people that you've spoken to, you haven't only spoken yeah. with the principal witnesses once, you've spoken with them a number of times, and their story, and I find this with people that I interview, the story does not change. If you look at people like uh, the abductee Calvin Parker, totally sincere yes. man, and you know, if he or his people hear this, you know, I, I know he's had some health issues. I, I'm wishing him well at the moment, and I hope that you know he's um, able to speak with us at, at some point. But the most important thing is that he makes, you know, his his health uh, is is the prime concern, is what I'm saying. But you know, Calvin, you talk with Calvin. I've talked with him a number of times, and his story is absolutely consistent. And it's not as yeah. if he's reading from notes in front of him. It's all in his head because he experienced it. Ditto with these people in North Wales. Their story has not wavered, has not changed. And as you say, they're completely credible. So where does it leave you, Gary? What are you going to do about it now? Well, um, I'm just going to try and promote the book for now. Um, hopefully, I might be able to get some more information in the future. Maybe some more witnesses will come forward. I would like, um, if possible, to... You know, I, I'm, I'm always interested to see if uh, some TV companies that want to do a show on it, you know, um, do something with it. Because I think, you know, when I, as I say in the top of the headline here, the Denby Light's a truthful argument for the existence of UFOs. The reason I call it a truthful argument is because, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, I think they're real, I think they're real, but show me one that says it is, you know what I mean? Show me a case. And I always like to point them to this one because, you know, 
okay, maybe it's not the right next Rendlesham Forest or Berwyn Mountain or Pento against them, but it's a real solid, very well-documented case. And there's no denying that this is an unidentified aerial phenomena or UFO event. Um, it's unexplained. It's been examined from all angles you could possibly imagine. There's nothing else to, to debate about it. It's it's genuine and it's confirmed. So I, I would just like to point people to that particular one, you know? So if you'd like to buy the book from Amazon, then be lights and uh, you know see for yourself see the documentary I made as well uh, the Denby Lights, a truthful argument for the existence of UFOs by Gary Jones, who we've been speaking with. It's uh, one of Philip Mantle's excellent flying disc publications. I'm very lucky to have a hardback copy, and I recommend it because of the clarity with which you tell the story, Gary. Well done, and I wish you well with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Howard. The Amazing Story of the Denby Lights, the book about it, is out now from Philip Mantle's Flying Disc Press, and by me, massively recommended. More great guests in the pipeline here at the home of The Unexplained. So until next we meet, my name is Howard Hughes. This has been The Unexplained Online, and please, whatever you do, stay safe, stay calm. And above all, please stay in touch. And one thing that I will say at the end of this one, uh, just so that people know, please be aware of fire in your home and look for possible sources of it. And if you don't have a smoke alarm, and I didn't, get one. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.